you take it. I know no, why, but yeah, I want to see I, if you I, can handle it. Yeah, I, was going to... <laughs> <laughs> I have the. Answer. I think it's because I, you know, I drawing on Sly's Shakespeare experience. <laughs> I just I I had a feeling that it would uh, be fun to do, and that that would translate because of some of the feelings that I had had just meeting Sly before the movie. That's that it. Was, that's it. You hit it. Okay. One hundred. Very good. <laughs> we got along very very well off screen, and and Kurt has a tremendous sense of humor. He's very a great laugh, and and a vivaciousness that he doesn't always use. And I thought, my God, if we ever get in a film together, I can use what I haven't done for a while, and he can use this other side of him, which is very outgoing, and I think it would be kind of an interesting combination, and that's pretty much what we relied on. Welcome to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. That's right, it's February, which means it's bromance month. Brad, how are you this evening? I'm great, man. Uh, as someone who has a bromance with you, I'm very excited to be here with just you. Yes, it's no just share, us. No sharing tonight. So uh, last year, we, we had a little experiment and we let the wives pick out all the movies for February since, you know, Valentine's Day and stuff. And uh, we decided we're never doing that again. (laughs) But this month we thought, hey, let's get in the mood and maybe just talk about movies that uh, are defined by their bromance. That's correct. So, yeah, we have four films for the month of February. And I got to pick the first one. And I picked the 1989 film, the last film to come out in 1989. Joy, did you know that? I I knew it came out in December. I didn't know it was the last one. It was the last. So, which is perfect for Tango and Cash because it's simply an amalgamation of all the 80s movie wrapped up into one movie. And they said, here you go. Now let's start a new decade. And that's what they did. Tango and Cash. Okay, so this one's kind of weird. I, I I thought it might be a good idea to maybe just restate the thesis of this podcast because this one this one made some money and technically from a box office perspective, it's not a bomb, but it still qualifies under our rules. So do you want to talk about our rules real quick, Brad? Yeah, so the the main thing of our podcast is we go back and re-examine some of the biggest bombs of cinematic history, and we consider a bomb. Usually, people consider bombs uh, films that don't make their money back financially. It can also bomb critically, um, and usually, we will do both. So, a, a film will bomb financially and critically, and we will go back and re-examine it. This time with Tangle and Cash, uh, like you said, it made money. But uh, the critics didn't like it. But yeah, so we, we go back and we look at films that um, bombed either or both uh, critically or financially and kind of reexamine them and see are they truly a bomb? What were the reasons behind the fact that they bombed? Uh, were there another big film that came out around that time? Um, was the film 10 years before it was, you know, was it a way ahead of its time sort of situation? 
and yeah, and then we we decide what we think. And uh, God, Troy, I, I was looking today. This is episode one thirty nine. Yeah, we've been at this for a little bit. I honestly didn't think that this would keep going after COVID because this was a little COVID project. But um, it's been really interesting because I, I like how you phrased it, especially on the critical side. We've talked about a lot of films, uh, one in particular starring Kurt Russell, Big Trouble in Little China. So when that thing came out, it was a box office failure, but it really wasn't received in a positive light from the critics. But man, you talk about that film now, and especially for our age group, um, critics and you know viewers, they love that film. So it is interesting to go back and revisit. Yeah, it some seems of like these. Kurt Russell is in those a lot because the thing is also another one where you, would, yeah, the thing is pretty much considered one of the greatest horror films slash body horror films of all time, and at the time it was a complete bomb. And uh, like you said, Big Trouble in Little China is another one I would consider the thing and Big Trouble in Little China and maybe Tango and Cash like perfect films. So. I think it's really interesting to go back and revisit these. Now, the first two bombed both critically and box office wise. It seemed like people came around to both Kurt Russell and Sylvester Stallone being on the screen. Now, we'll talk about the production and development because there's a lot of drama that went on behind the scenes. But this one's interesting because when you talk about films from the 80s and specifically action films, this one ends up being in the conversation quite a bit, but I'm really curious to kind of look at it now, so many years later, and especially with, um, I guess, 2023 vision to see if it still holds up that that'll be the test, right? When was the last time you watched Tango and cash? Uh, I watched it a couple of years ago. Okay. I think I watched it at the very beginning of COVID. This is one of those comfort films for me. So when we were like, kind of trapped inside Tango and cash was like that warm blanket for me. Yeah. Uh, so I had seen it within the past two and a half years. Yeah. And I, I think I had a COVID watch of this one too, because there was a stint of just, Hey, what are all my favorite, like, you know, action films, people getting kicked in the face. What makes me feel good. Yeah, exactly. Cause that, that's what you were looking for. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I did realize this week though, that I had never shown this to my son and my son loves eighties action films. So we had a we had a really interesting weekend because we went to see um, uh, Pat, Patan P A T H A A N. Mm-hmm. It was a new Indian film, so I'm, I'm sure our, our good friend Josh would be proud of us. We went to a sold out screening, which was awesome. And uh, then the next day, I'm like, well, let's let's get that action train going again, and I'm going to expose you to Tango and Cash. And so I'll, I'll share his thoughts when we get to it. But first of all, you do a little homework for us, and we go back in the time machine. And we talk about how this thing was received critically, but also how it performed at the box office. So I'm going to kick it over to you and and take us a walk down memory lane. Yeah. So interesting. Um, like I was mentioning before, this is um, the last film um, released. It was released in December 22, December 22nd, 1989. Um, so it was the last uh, big release of the calendar year. Uh, so then films were just like, okay, we got to start a new decade. <laughs> Tango and Cash goes out, let's turn the page, yep. bookend. Um, originally, the budget for Tango and Cash was $34 million. This film went over budgets by $20 million and over schedule by 11 weeks. Yes. Um, when you go over schedule um, by that many weeks, you are paying a hefty, like the budget grows exponentially because you're keeping people past 
uh, what they were originally told they were going to be kept. Usually you work in about six to eight weeks of reshoots. Uh, but when you have to go over schedule, that's a, that's a big problem and starts to really uh, cost you a lot of money. Yes. Um, but, but Troy, like we were hinting before, Tango of Cash makes $120.4 million during its box office run. So even with its inflated budgets, um, maybe saying P&A at $50 million, it makes, you know, it makes the, the studio a pretty penny. Um, and that's 1989 dollars. So in yeah. today's standards, I mean, you're that would be north of like 200 million, right? 250 million. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so pretty nice for a buddy cop action film. Um, opening weekend. Now this is pretty uh, interesting. It makes uh, 6.6 million dollars. That's good enough for second place. Now I find this very interesting. The first three weeks that Tango and Cash is out in the theater. It makes 6.6 the first weekend, 9.6 the second weekend. So it actually increases. Um, Which and is then the rare. third week, yeah, is very rare. And the third week, it makes another $6.6 million. So over a three week period, it's basically flat. Like it doesn't drop any. Um, which is insane. You that would be unheard of. That's now. that's James Cameron type performance, right? Between yeah. Titanic, Avatar, and all that, right? Yeah, insane. Yeah. So uh think about that for just a second. Like that that never happened. I mean, even the best films have like a 20% drop off at minimum. Now we're seeing films. I think Black Adam dropped off like 75% from week yeah. uh first yeah. week and the second weekend. This was flat, which is crazy. Um, so big ups to big trouble or uh, big trouble to Tango and cash. Cause that's uh that's an impressive three week run there. Um, even the fourth week, it only drops to 5.3. Like it doesn't drop below a million dollars during its run. This thing had legs. And I, I do yeah. remember, I mean, this is, I'm in high school when this comes out and, and for myself and, and my friends, we saw this a few times. So that, mm-hmm. I mean, the word of mouth on this back in eighties, uh, Wichita, Kansas, it, it was pretty hot and I, I remember loving it. My parents loved it. It just seemed to kind of cross the, all the, you know, boundaries in terms of age and demographics where, you know, kids were going for the action, at least the high school was And my parents love Sylvester Stallone. Right. I mean, yep. we saw staying alive opening weekend. There you go. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, this was, a, this was a considerably big hit and it had good word of mouth at the time. Yeah, yeah, but uh, which is strange because if you look at the critical response, this sits at a 31% with the critics and only a 52% with the audience, which I am appalled at. Um, The audience score really throws me off on this one because in our circles, I think this movie is um, revered quite a bit. I would think, yeah, yes, very much so. And so sometimes, you know, you have that... uh, echo chamber effect where we think oh everyone thinks that because everyone that we know loves this film but i guess maybe not but i i think those people are wrong um that's with over fifty thousand reviews so that's quite a few um ebert refused (laughs) to review this movie and um i don't know if you saw that clip of his show with him and ebert but boy he said this was a, a waste of electricity yeah, he was not kind to this. Not film. kind, not kind at all. Um, 
So films. That, oh, and I'm sorry, Troy. The Christians did not review. Uh, they were Tango siding with Ebert. They didn't want to waste their yes. time with Tango and Cash. Yes. Uh, but some big hitters in uh, December of uh, 1989. We have War of the Roses, Driving Miss Daisy, Family Business, We're No Angels, The Wizard, Born on the Fourth of July, and then a movie called Always, which mm-hmm. was like another uh, same weekend as Tango and Cash. So it, that was the that, Spielberg directed mm-hmm. uh, film with Richard Dreyfus and which John Goodman. Kind of considered a bomb, but like for Steven Spielberg, like uh, metrics, but you know, still made seventy two million dollars, and then of course Tango and Cash. So um, yeah, a good good month for films December of nineteen eighty nine. I think I saw them all. Uh, maybe, maybe I was your nap during driving Miss Daisy. I love driving Miss Daisy. I saw that a couple times in the theater. Uh, and, and you got Tom Cruise with born on the 4th of July, well, which yeah, yeah. I, I do remember watching that film. It was at cinemas West in Wichita, Kansas. And the reason why that showing stuck out is there was an older gentleman that was sitting maybe a couple of rows in front. And there were a few sequences in that film that he just, just started crying uh, especially during the war sequences. And I, I think it was sort of a PTSD sort of scenario oh, and he had to leave, yeah. but that's how impactful that film was. I think people forget about Tom, you know, eighties, Tom Cruise and some of these films that he was putting out like born in the Fortune of July, but we're not going to digress into cruiseology <laughs> right now. Let's talk about the people behind the camera in front of the camera. We'll start behind the camera. So I'm going to name a director, but when we get to the production development, we're going to name a couple of other directors but the person who gets credited for this film is Andrei Konchalovsky. Yep. So he's a Russian theater and film director. I think outside of this film, the only other film I can think of that people might recognize is a little film that I actually saw for the first time during the COVID days. And it's 1985's Runaway Train. Runaway Train. Yep. Yep. Which was a canon film. Yes. Which is uh, an amazing film. We talked about that during something what have we talked about that film yeah in one of we the brought it episodes up. um because it i think it was about the time that i discovered it and was like oh my gosh i i, I did not realize how good that film was great uh, john void in that movie uh was it eric roberts eric roberts yeah yeah it's fantastic but yeah if you, if you eric roberts the, book <laughs> if, you, if you look at the rest of andre's filmography there's a lot of stuff i haven't seen runaway train would be the only one outside of this one now the screenplay is directed by Randy Feldman. He he's got some bangers in his filmography. It starts out with Hell Night in 1981, and then you've got stuff like Tango and Cash in '89, Nowhere to Run in '93, a really underseen Jean Claude Van Damme film. You've got Metro in '97, the Eddie Murphy action flick. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It's it's no Beverly Hills Cop. It isn't. It's its own thing, but it, but I liked it. And, uh, you know, he did some TV work, too. He did an episode for uh, Martial Law, the Samuel Hung film or TV show that uh, he was doing. And I think it was airing with Walker, Texas Ranger at that time. Oh, yes, that's right. It yeah, because it was, you know, watch two hours of people getting kicked in the face. Right. CBS cinematography by Donald E. Thorne. Now, this gentleman listen to some of the films he's worked on. So this is just selected filmography. Thief, 1981, Michael Mann's film. Michael Mann, yep. An Officer and a Gentleman in 82. Purple Rain in 84. Midnight Run in 88, the Robert De Niro film, Charles Grodin. 
Uh, collision course in 19. So this Ooh. is 1989. Collision course, Jay Leno, Pat Morita. Pat Morita. Good Lord. He does Stallone's other film that came out that year, Lock Up, and then Tango and Cash in 89. People sleep on Lock Up. Lock Up is dope as shit. I agree. We're going to talk about Donald when we talk about our thoughts on the film because uh, I want to sing some praise of Donald on this one. Music by none other than Harold Faltermeyer. Now, I I think the three movies, when you think of Harold Faltermeyer, it comes down to what? Fletch, Top Gun, and Beverly Beverly Hills Cop. Cop. I mean, yep. those are the three iconic ones from that decade. They're very synthy, very, uh, very iconic. Like the Fletch and Beverly Hills Cop are two of the best. Uh, and Top I think Gun. I've, you forgot and Top, Top Gun. Gun's good too. But yeah. that Beverly Hills Cop one is so good. And so is Fletch. And Top Gun is good too. Yeah, but they're, all, they're all three fantastic. He's, he's got a really diverse filmography. The, hey, the, the thing that stood out to me this time when I was watching uh, Tango and Cash is that synth the beat in the back is going and i love it <laughs> okay um stunt coordinator james arnett now we've talked about james before let me list the films that we've talked about that james has been the stunt coordinator on or has done stunt work on we've got grease 2 1982 so a year ago we're talking about grease 2 and we're and james arnett was a stunt coordinator for that uh, the Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Stunt coordinator for that. I think that's episode like 38 for us. Yeah, it was It was, it was when you bought me pizza when yeah. I came out to visit. Yep. Speaking of bromance. Yeah, that was, that was a nice <laughs> night. Uh, the hey, bo- I, ch- I changed. That was also the day, the, the morning that you were introduced to like coffee. That was actually really, really good. Oh, that's right. That was the weekend that you introduced me to Chemex Brewing. Mm-hmm. Oh, dude, changed my life. Like, I, I just hate coffee unless I do it through um, Chemex. And then I now buy coffee from that website, um, mm-hmm. the Fishtown brand. Yes. La, La Colombia. Yeah, La Colombia. Yeah, this is going to turn into a commercial for, for coffee and Hey, Chemex if they brand. want to sponsor us and give us coffee, I will I will shill. All day long. That stuff's yes. amazing. So The Blob, 1988. So he worked on that. The Rocketeer, 1991. A lot of episodes we've done. One more. This one threw me for a loop. Congo, 1995. Yeah, he worked on wow. that. Wow. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I want to talk about in terms of people behind the camera, and this will come up when we talk about production development. Let's talk about the producers, John Peters and Peter Goober. So they were heavy hitters in the 80s in terms of a production team. And they had done films like Caddyshack, An American Werewolf in London, Flashdance, and The Color Purple. Just just a sample of what they did. Mm -hmm. They were such a big powerhouse. And as a result of their success, Warner Brothers gave them the most lucrative production deal ever for that time period. And it actually led to them producing probably one of the most influential films of the 80s. And that's none other than Tim Burton's Batman. Yes, so they are the I, I, I will say they represent the studio behind the scenes and they also represent a lot of chaos behind the scenes. But we'll get yeah. there. we'll get there. Well, Peters is talked about a lot in that documentary, The Death of Superman Lives, mm-hmm. about how he wanted this giant spider and all this stuff. And then all that stuff kind of kind of kind of came into fruition with Wild Wild West. So. Wild Wild West is like this weird kind of bastard child of ideas that were supposed to be at the death of Superman. It's pretty funny. It's when you hear these stories about studio intervention, 
uh, and kind of getting in front of the creative process, these two names would pop up quite a bit because they, as, as much as they hired directors, writers, actors, everything else, they always had a vision for their films of what they wanted to do. And you will just hear story after story of how their visions would conflict a lot of times with the filmmaker that was trying, you know, to, to kind of put the action to the film. So let's talk about the people in front of the camera. Uh, Sylvester Stallone, Tango. Okay. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest movie stars of this decade. And if you're thinking about what he was doing leading up to Tango and Cash or around this time period, let's just kind of walk through his filmography a little bit. We had Over the Top in 1987. I'm sure we're going to fantastic. We're going to have to talk about that one at some point. Um, but not a huge hit for him, right? Not a huge hit. Uh, that Sammy Hagar song, though, for yeah. that film, amazing. We've got Rambo 3 in 1988. Which was also kind of a disappointment. Yes. Um, again, that could qualify probably to be on the show just from a critical reception, right? Yeah. We got Lock Up in 89. Which was not a huge financial success. So he is not writing. He is far from Rambo, First Blood, Cobra. Yeah. It, it, would, would you say that Stallone starts off really, I mean, just knock him out of the ballpark at the beginning of the decade? Arguably, no one ends the 70s and begins the 80s better than Sylvester Stallone. Oh, I, I agree 100%. And so... We go Tango and Cash the same year. He follows that up with another sequel to Rocky, Rocky Five, which Not wasn't <laughs> really well received. No. Nope. And then changes course a little bit and tries his hand out with comedy with 1991's Oscar. Yeah. Which I happen to actually like quite a bit. What's the next film, Troy? What's the next film? Yeah. Do I, you know what? No, I didn't write it down. Stop or my mom will shoot. You know, another mm. hidden gem. <laughs> so <clears throat> I would say up until Tango and Cash, Sylvester Sloan was not known for his comedic presence, mm. which I think is one of the things that maybe attracted him to this movie is he kind of gets to flex his comedic muscles a little bit. Um, and then he kind of goes for it in Oscar. So it's interesting um, there. That That is a that is a cool way to look at it. He's He's coming into the decade as an action star and is really trying to stretch his wings a little bit mm -hmm. at the end of it, going into that comedic turn. I, I guess you're right. Tango and cash. Well, you got to look at like Schwarzenegger, like yeah. Schwarzenegger is a naturally funny guy, which is why he sort of resonates way more than Sylvester Stallone. Like I, you could never see Sylvester Stallone being kindergarten cop. Wait, you, so let me, let me just ask this question then between Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger, you think Arnold Schwarzenegger is funnier than Stallone. Yes. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe. Um, I, we'll have to come back to that question on my opinion. Cause I, I can make a case either way. Cause I do like Oscar. I think he's, he's good at that. Yeah. I, okay. I, I think when Stallone gets a good script, he can be very charming and funny. I think the problem is maybe Schwarzenegger chose better scripts than maybe Stallone. Now that, that could be the case. That could be the case, but. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe I just I have a hard time seeing Sly as Richard Kimball. Okay, I, I I agree with you. I mean, now in terms the next of, now the next guy we're going to talk about oh do it all. Yes, the pantheon of actors and movie stars, Kurt Russell. He's been on this show several times. Now, if we're talking about his career in late '80s, we get movies like Tequila Sunrise in '88, 
Winter People in 89, Tango and Cash in 89, and then Backdraft in 91. Oh, we, we've talked o- about overboard. This. Did you say overboard? Oh, what, what year was that? 88. 88. Okay. Yeah. No, 87, 87. Yeah. I thought that was a little bit before. Yeah. Um, Tequila Sunrise is another one. Mel Gibson, Michelle Pfeiffer. He's in it. I love that film. I think it's really good. I've always, we've talked about this before. There are some people that even if they're in a subpar film, they just shine. And Kurt Russell is one of those. I, I'm trying to think even Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, which I am not a big fan of. Mm-mm. I love him in it. Yeah, Death Proof. He's kind of the reason to watch Death Proof. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. Now, like, if there was an actor that I would just want to hang out with and drink beer and just shoot the shit with, Kurt Russell. Yes. Would be number one on that list. Like, he seems like he's the coolest guy in the world. He, like, he would show up to your house with, like, a cool jean jacket on and, like, has he, you know, some he, cool boots. And you're just like, God, I wish I was that cool. You see these stars or movie stars or people who work in Hollywood and they really seem to have a tough time, I don't know, negotiating their personality outside of their roles and characters. And sometimes they get in trouble, sometimes they come off as an ass. And Caressel has never, I, I guess, broached that. Do you think? Or can you no, think ne- of anything? Never. Yeah. I, I No. I don't know. I'm like even that movie, like Captain Ron, like is not a great movie, but Kurt Russell is great at that movie. Yeah. And then like you see him in Tombstone and you're like this, like he's actually really underrated as an actor too. Like he doesn't, he's been just acting play, all of his life, right? Yeah. He just doesn't play the cool guy. He is a cool guy, but he could do so much more. Um, he can stretch his legs a lot. And um, I think he's, strangely like underrated as an actor because people just think of him as this guy who's like really cool and stuff um and i know that someone suggested that we do soldier at some point in time we will do soldier because i've been thinking about that movie ever since they oh yeah we're doing that this year Uh, we have to because i i really enjoy that film yeah i I, i'm i'm with you i think he just has this calm collected i don't know confidence about him even when you see interviews and stuff and uh man nobody rocks a beard the way that Kurt Russell does. I'm sorry. I mean, or, or like a fashionably cool mullet. Like yeah. oh I saw God. him in this movie. I'm like, Oh, that should, mane. I, should I go for that? Ooh. Should I go for that mane? Yeah. You want to, you want to go back in time and go in my twenties. I should have, you know, grew my hair out like that. But, yeah. uh, let's talk about Terry Hatcher as Kiki, uh, tango sister. So I didn't know this. Terry Hatcher was a former NFL cheerleader for the San Francisco 49ers. Did you know that? I did not know that. Okay, there you go. She did lots of TV leading up to Tango and Cash. And I think most people, though, now know her for two television series. The first one being Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, which ran for four years, 93 to 97. So she picked that up after Tango and Cash, but then hit the stratosphere of fame with a little TV show that was that was very popular called Desperate Housewives that ran from 2004 to 2012. What do what Terry Hatcher thinks of Dean Kane now? I don't know. Hey, do you own every season of Desperate Housewives? No, I, I do not. Yeah, this uh, guy do does. Uh huh. Your wife does? Yeah, my wife does. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I can say I do too. It's, I it's funny to see Terry Hatcher in the, in this film because she's so young and even in Tango and Cash, she kind of jumps off the screen a bit as a stripper who doesn't strip but plays the drums. Yeah. So. Yeah. Hey, I'm sold. Uh, let's talk about some of the bad guys. Jack Palance as Perrette. 
I now I knew that he had a couple of Academy Award nominations. I didn't know two of them were so close. So he was nominated for Sudden Fear in 1952 for Best Supporting Actor. And then in 1953. For Shane. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Shane. So back to back. Mm -hmm. But he ended up winning it in 1991. Yeah. Best Supporting Actor for City Slickers. And if, if you go through like Oscar's best moments, you'll see Jack Palance doing like one arm pushups on stage. Um, yeah, the, the guy, Jack Palance, just uh, if, if you talk about some of the most menacing people ever to be on the silver screen, you, you've just got to think of Shane, 1953 Shane. Or 1989 Batman. 1989 Batman is good, but... Shane, he is. Yeah. I mean, he wrote the textbook on villains from that performance. He's yeah. So if you haven't seen Shane, check Shane out because it is an amazing film. Um, I try to think what where I got mine, but it's. I think it's pretty easy to get. Oh, you yeah. can get your hands on it. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sure you can. Uh, you could argue that he walked off the set of Batman '89. Onto the set of Tango and Cash is playing the exact same character, which I kind of love. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a point in his career where it was sort of rinse and repeat. Mm-hmm. But when you do it that well, I'm okay with that. 100%. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. do what you do best, right? You uh, are my number one. <laughs> <laughs> are we going to hear a lot of Jack Ponies today? <laughs> cash, it's Tango. Because Tango, like, Tango cash. is Cash. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Brian James as ponytail guy, I think Requin or something is his name. I just know him as ponytail guy. Yeah. He, he wasn't supposed to have a big part in this, but he was trying out this Cockney accent and all of a sudden everybody loved it. So they kind of wrote more things for him to do. So this cat, he's been acting since 1974, started with a lot of TV work, has 175 acting credits. Now Plays he, a lot of heavies. He's this dude that just shows up and stuff. And you recognize him. He has a look. I was trying to think of the films that come to mind when I see him. Obviously, for me, it's Blade Runner in 48 Hours. I don't know if there's any other films that that you kind of equate him Blade to. Blade Runner. Yeah. Blade Runner. Okay. Yeah, he's, the, he's the, the replicant that kind of kicks things off at the beginning of Blade Runner, right? Yep. The turtle. The turtle, right. So around this time period, listen to what he was doing in 1989. So this is one year, 1989 alone. He did House 3, The Horror Show a movie called Circles in a Forest, Mutator, Desperado, The Outlaw Wars, which was some TV film, and Tango and Cash. That's one year for this guy. That's awesome. Yeah. Good for him. Yep. Now we got some other folks that these names, we've actually talked about. James Hong as Quan. He was uh, Lo Pan in Big Trouble in Little China. Yes, he was. We got Mark Alamo uh, as Lopez. I think most people might recognize him from Total Recall the following year. So he's another character actor kind of pops up, but that was the film that as soon as I saw that uh, title, I recognized his face from total recall. Yep. We got now this, this struck Here you me. Go. This struck me as odd. Hold on. Um, Jeffrey Lewis is uncredited in this film as captain Schroeder, which I don't know why, like I could not understand why Je- cause Jeffrey Lewis is in this film quite a bit. Oh Yeah. And he's uncredited. He's uncredited. So Jeffrey Lewis, Jeffrey Lewis, we've talked about when we talked about heaven's gate in 1980, Jeffrey Lewis for me is a big part of my childhood for three things. 
um, two of which are Clint Eastwood related. So every which way but loose in 78 and any which way you can in 1980. So those movies are childhood favorites, and to this day I love them. But he also represents one of the scariest things I've ever seen growing up, and that was when he was like floating outside on Salem's Lot, the miniseries from 1979. Ooh, yes, okay. Yeah, yeah. God, he has a ton of credits, doesn't he? Oh, my gosh. He is all over. Now, he worked a lot with Clint Eastwood, especially in the 80s. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I I've, I go to IMDb, and I'm expecting to see his name because I know who he is, Jeffrey Lewis. And you're going through it, and it's nowhere. And then when you start going through, like, the actual credits, it finally has his name, but it's listed as uncredited. It's crazy. Um, Philip Tan. Now, he's the Chinese guy that uh, Cash interrogates i know him from a lot of 90s not all straight to video um the perfect weapon in 1991 oh yes which is amazing you you i thought jeff speakman was going to be bigger um after that <laughs> film i really did but he's also in stuff like martial law and showdown in little tokyo which we're going to talk mm-hmm. about this month very soon okay he also was in congo as a gorilla there you go. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> um, we've got Michael J. Pollard as Owen. We talked about him, what, a couple of weeks ago? We had Mike Morton on the show talking about yeah. uh, Dark Angel. I, AKA yeah, he basically come, plays the same character. Yeah. How about that? So we're, we're getting some names that when you talk about um, some of our other friends that do podcasts like Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Night of Living Podcast, Cold of Muscle, the, these names that we're going to talk about um, next, I mean, they're all over the place, right? So let's start with Robert Zadar as face. We talked about Robert Zadar when we did Samurai Cop. Samurai Cop. He is the face. He is. Can I mean name another actor? Cop. Yeah, name another actor that immediately shows up on screen and you just you go, oh, that's Robert Zadar. Nobody looks like Robert Zadar. He's such a he's he's just a fun actor to watch. We get Michael. Another G- character. I think in this he wasn't supposed to be um, in it as much. Um, but I guess they liked him and he was there. So they kind of like Robert Zadar. You got Robert Zadar, like throwing people around. Why wouldn't you do it? Right. Yeah. Cause he keeps coming back. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Michael Jeter as Skinner. Now we talked about him when we talked about Waterworld from 1995. So he's in yeah. that one. I'm, I'm excited about this. Clint Howard as Slinky. So Clint's <laughs> Clint's been on our show twice. Do you, do you remember what two films? Uh, Ooh, Clint Howard. Yeah. Oh boy. Troy. Okay. You're going to make me, I'm going to give you're it gonna to, have you. to help me. All right. The rocketeer and also solo a star Wars story. Remember he's like the ringmaster for the robot fights or the, that's droid right. Fights? Okay. Okay. And yep. He, of course he's going to be in that film. His brother was directing, right? Yes, that's right. Okay. Here are two names that you're not going to see in the credits, but if you pay close attention to the prison sequence, you will recognize him. Do you know what two people I'm talking about, Brad? No. Okay. So in the prison sequence, while Tango and Cash are kind of getting pushed around, Jack Plains shows up, right? Brian James. And if you pay close attention, you, you got to pay close attention, but they're right there. You, you, you can't miss him if you're looking for him. You will see as prison thug one and prison thug two, Billy Blanks and Benny the Jet Urquidez. That's funny. So go back I, and watch. I that. just you, watched. I just watched Dragons Forever on Saturday with some friends, and we were talking about that. And I can't believe I didn't catch that. 
Yeah. And here's, here's two movies that I think we need to cover. I don't know if it's a special episode or whatnot, but Billy Blanks has, uh, every, when you talk about Roddy Piper, everybody talks about, they live, um, as being like one of his best films, et cetera. And it is, I'm, I say no, <laughs> Roddy Piper's two best films he did with Billy Blanks. It's 1994's back in action in the sequel, 1995's Tough and Deadly. I think we need to do like a special show just talking about those films. They're I, they're lethal weapon ripoffs, but they're so much fun. They're so good. I hey, I'm down. Okay. You don't have to twist my arm. Uh but yeah, that's those are some of the names I wanted to throw out as in front of the camera. This I, I don't know about you, but this movie is just amazing to kind of um, sit back and look at all of these eighties actors or cult actors that just show up. There's a lot of like those guys, that guy and that guy. And oh, Hey, there's that guy. Yeah. But you got to go back and, and, and just watch that seg- segment for uh, Billy Blanks and Benny the Jet Arquitas. They're just, they're just standing there in the background. Like they're going to beat people up. Yeah. Like that guy, uh, Roy Brock Smith is in this movie as well. Like if you see that guy, oh, you'll yeah, know yeah, who yeah. I'm talking about. Yep. Let's talk about the production and development real quick. Oh boy. <laughs> So we, we've talked about this in the past. Like one of the indicators that, you know, a movie's going to bomb sometimes is all the drama that happens behind the scenes. Right. Yep. So I'm, you've already talked about the budget. I mean, this thing went way over budget and cost an extra, what, $20 million. Yep. So $19.9. I mean, that that's, that's like a whole nother movie. Yeah. It was like 75% of its budget was, you know, I mean, cause it went from 34 to 54. So that's an extra 20. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah. So that that's kind of a big deal. And if if you were to ask me going into it, I would have been like, well, that movie's going to bomb. I mean, just they can't get their act together, right? So listen to the stuff that happened. The film was known as The Setup and was based on a script by Randy Feldman, which was based on an idea by John Peters and Peter Goober. Sylvester Stallone and Patrick Swayze were signed to star. They were the original, you know, Tango and Cash. Yep. In March 1989, Andre Konchalowski signed to direct. Then Swayze dropped out and went on to star in Roadhouse, which came out that same year. So I, I got to thinking about that because I was reading that. Do you think there's an alternate world where Kurt Russell stars in Roadhouse and Patrick Swayze stars in Tango and Cash? I hope so. You know, when when you see all of this um, science about multiverses, and I know mm-hmm. they're playing it up in the, the comic book movies, et cetera, but if there really is something as a multiverse and there was a machine to get you to all these multiverses, I would be seeking out stuff like that. Kurt Russell that, and Roadhouse. That's House. the one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if Kurt Russell fights the same way, but he's because he's more of a brawler, but. Yeah. It kind of fits like the bar scene in a way. I don't know if it's better, but it would definitely, I don't know. I definitely want to see it. Well, I want to see Tango and Cash with Patrick Swayze. Yeah. I think it's interesting too, that Benny the Jet Arquidez shows up as sort of an extra, an uncredited thug in the prison sequences, but he's over in uh, roadhouse land doing the fight choreography with yeah. Patrick Swayze and stuff. So um, yeah, that's pretty interesting. But yeah, Kurt Russell replaces him. And then here's where here's where some other names are going to come up and you're going to like, what? What happened? Sylvester Stallone had the original director of photography. Get this. Barry Sonnenfield. So Men in Black director. Uh, Sylvester Stallone got him fired. Didn't like him. Donald E. Thorne, who had shot Stallone's movie Lockup earlier that year, was Sonnenfeld's replacement. 
That's crazy me. That's crazy. Okay, here we go. After nearly three months of filming, director Andre Konchalowski was fired by producer John Peters in a dispute over the movie's ending. Konchalowski said, I'm, I, I'm butchering that name, I know I am. Um, so he said that the reason he was fired was because he and Stallone wanted to give the film a more serious tone and make it more realistic than the producers wanted, especially John Peters, who kept pushing for the film to be goofier and campier, and as such, his relationship with Peters became problematic. Konchalowski, however, had nothing but praise for Sylvester Stallone, and both um, and he said that despite Stallone's ego and decision to fire the original cinematographer and the fact that he had a hand in his firing, Stallone was the one person who held the project together and that he was a constant voice of reason on an increasingly chaotic set. According to Konchalowski, by the end of the principal photography, Stallone was unofficially working as producer, director, and writer, as well as star. And Konchalowski believes that had it not been for Stallone, Peters would have fired him much sooner than he did. And production sources said that Konchalowski had been given impossible scheduling demands and was then made the scapegoat when the whole production fell behind. Yeah, I always, I had always heard that, that he was the scapegoat. Yeah. So the director was replaced with Albert Magnoli, who filmed all the chase and fight scenes in the ending. So the entire ending is, an, is a whole new director. In post-production, director Magnoli called everyone back to the set for two more weeks of additional reshoots, which included filming a completely new opening sequence. The film ultimately missed its budget by over $20 million and had to be completely re-edited by editor Stuart Baird prior to its theatrical release. So production issues, fired cinematographer, fired director, hire a new director, and, and everybody's disagreeing about what this movie should be. So the movie was racing to make its December release date, but due to Warner Brothers Studios' complaints on every different cut that was being edited before they approved the final theatrical version, it barely made the deadline and ended up being shipped to theaters in wet prints. So wet print is a term that everybody uses that says, hey, the, the print hasn't even dried and they're shipping it yeah. out to all the theaters. That's how yeah. close it was. So it was just days before it had to be released. And, and just for context, too, um, for those who don't know, when you go to a movie theater today, your film is delivered via um, like a hard drive, a hard drive, more or less, um, yeah. or it can be streamed. Right. Back in those days, you actually were dealing with four or five print reels that had to be put together at the theater. So um, this is this is kind of scary because you have to mass produce, you know, all of those prints and get them shipped out. And pretty much the film wasn't even finished um, before, you know, printing it getting it to the theaters. That's just crazy to me. They couldn't, they couldn't decide on a final edit. Crazy. Yeah. It should, it should have bombed just based on that story alone. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of goes to show you kind of the pool that Russell and, and Salone had plus kind of the buddy cop dynamic as well. Yeah. And I think it's safe to say too, when we talk about tango and cash, you, you gotta, you gotta go back to the eighties. So I, I was thinking about this the other day, like how many buddy cop films do you see today? Like police uh, detectives or what? I, I can't think of one recently. The other guys is like the one I, 
Well, I'm thinking like in the last few years. Yeah, you see a lot of stuff where there's special well, central intelligence. Or, were they cops in that? I I, I don't see that. That's the trope now, isn't it? Isn't right it all along. about like the special agent or yeah. the FBI guy or the international spy? You don't you don't see a lot of these buddy cop films where they're just hitting the streets. But back in the 80s, even the 90s, I mean, that was that was the action formula. Wasn't there a movie called like Let's Be Cops? <laughs> Oh yeah. The comedy. Okay. Yeah. Quote unquote. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, in this environment, I think it'd be very tough to get something green lit about two cops yes. trying to take on crime in, in the city or something. Well, I mean, which the time frame around this one, you know, hero LA cops turns very quickly two years after this film uh, comes out. So yeah, it was, um, a, it was a different time period. Totally yeah, different time period. I, I had also read production wise that they were so afraid that this movie was not going to get rated. Like it was going to get an X rating because of the violence. Um, so they cut it up and had a lot of jump cuts and stuff like that. So it is kind of jarring. Sometimes there are a lot of weird cuts in this to like mask the violence. Yeah. They, they couldn't show so much of the, uh, the carnage that was happening with all the bodies flying from the bullets. So it's kind of made up with just a tons of explosions. Yeah. Yeah. Except for the, like the last, it seems like the last sequence, there's a lot of squibs in that last sequence. Yeah. It seemed, it seemed like they were making it up, you know, at that point. Yeah. Okay. Good on you. So how about we take a quick break and then we just start gushing over this film. Let's do it. All right. We'll be back. They're at the movies. It's the big date. They love their popcorn. Look what they ate. This kind of action. The main attraction. Oh boy. Ain't love grand. He's buying lots of goodies. Ice cream, Pepsi, and peanuts too. Living on love's not easy. You need your strength to woo. Now he returns. What's this she yearns? Refreshing Pepsi. A kiss he earns. Romance and pleasure. And for good measure. Thirst quenching Pepsi. For those who think young. Imagine a man so powerful, his fist can penetrate a six-inch post, whose head, elbows, knees, and feet are loaded weapons, ready to explode. Lo Lee is the stranger, a martial arts master. Lee Van Cleef is the gunfighter, the legendary man of iron. He carries luck for the ladies and life on his hip. Columbia Pictures presents... The Stranger and the Gunfighter. Welcome to Monterey. Where the law is left dangling at the end of a rope. The hanging town. Lee Van Cleef, ah! Low Lee, two fantastic fighting machines. The Stranger and the Gunfighter. Together, they can do anything. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Brad, uh, I, how do you want to start, man? This, this is an unusual film because I'm pretty sure we're both going to land in the same spot, and this is probably going to be one of those, 
hey do you remember that sequence yeah that yeah. was really cool <laughs> yeah i i absolutely love this movie um uh, every time i see it i'm like i like sylvester sloan i love kurt russell i love kurt russell yeah. every time i see this movie i'm like he is so good in this movie he's so good at playing the kind of crazy off the wall guy uh but you still think he's a good guy want to hang with him um can we talk about that stallone russell dynamic for a minute yeah and i wanted to hit on that because i think the best thing that this film does is the trope with the buddy cop film is we get together we don't like each other we argue throughout the whole film we butt heads and then in the third act we become friends and then we do what we're supposed to do look at the first bad boys uh lethal weapon kind of even does that here they spend very little time not liking each other like it's they kind of don't like each other when they first meet and then by the time they're in prison it's kind of like hey we got to get out of here we've got to do this we've got to do that sure we might disagree on things but there's not a lot of bickering back and forth even with the stuff with the sister at the end it's like not even it's not that big of a deal they're still kind of going through what they're doing and still seemingly friends and i kind of enjoy that i kind of don't like the films where the two leads are always kind of butting heads and hating each other here they're kind of playfully making fun of each other there's a really weird scene where they're there the shower together oh you say weird i i say hot erotic yes it's erotic (laughs) sure sure i mean there's probably a strong possibility that their dicks touched in that scene. They were that close like, and they're just, you know, checking each other out. And Hey, if I'm in a shower with Sylvester Sloan and Kurt Russell, I'm looking at their dicks. I'm, I'm telling you that. Um, that's fair. That is totally fair. I, I just, I like their dynamic. I like the relationship they have. They have a really nice bromance. And I, I think that's the best quality of this film is Sylvester Sloan is not a funny guy guy naturally i don't think i think he has to try kurt russell is a naturally funny guy naturally charismatic um and i think he levitates so do you um but do you think that's because when when you hear all of the stuff going on behind this the scenes sylvester sloan was wearing way more hats than kurt russell kurt russell only had to probably worry about his scenes and that's it yeah sylvester sloan had to produce probably had to direct probably had to help the cinematographer probably he was rewriting the script too i'm sure yeah so i I will give him a break he's still real good at this but i the the product on screen is Kurt Russell is the coolest person in the entire world. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think Stallone and Russell work really well together in this film. The highlight of Tango and Cash is simply Tango and Cash. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about, okay, hey, the idea was in February, we're going to do this whole bromance thing. Of all the movies we're going to talk about this month, I I think this is the pure definition of bromance between those two. And I, I like your comment. I feel like they're bickering throughout the entire film but their bickering is the equivalent of uh my wife and i going at each other where it's very playful it's it's not mean-spirited like you you can tell they don't want to like each other but in fact they like each other yeah and i think what's super interesting is i mean i i think you would agree because you you've kind of hinted at this russell carries the relationship Stallone is good, but Russell carries it. The film is built more on their interactions more than anything. The The script is dumb 
and and the comedy's kind of dumb, but the fact that they're having fun doing it kind of takes it across the finish line and their performance ends up being really good. And I would also ask the question, can a movie be saved on charisma alone? Meaning if you have a pedestrian script, average visuals, is is it possible for a single performance or a couple of performances, can it elevate the average quality of everything? And I think the answer is yes. And the proof really is Kurt Russell and Tango and Cash. <laughs> yeah, because if you if you even push on the plot of this film, it will fall over like a house of cards. The the scene with Jack Palance in the big, very beginning in the limo, you're like, why is he here with this? Like he's obviously shouldn't be there, but we have to establish him as the bad guy early. So we're going to have him drive by the crime scene at the very beginning to establish that, Hey, here's our big bad. Like, okay, we get it. It's Jack Palance. We know he's already the bad guy. Well, I, <laughs> <laughs> let's let's face it if you get confused at any point in this film don't worry because there's going to be a newspaper that's oh going to explain God. everything to you of what's going Dude, on they treat these two cops like lebron james <laughs> in la like ha- have you ever seen hero cops on the front page of a newspaper i mean sadly cops are on the newspaper now for much different reasons but here it's like man these well, guys are the hold on coolest. they're not they're it, they're on the paper because they're going to jail. So the cops well, in today's at the very, newspaper at the very beginning, oh, like, at the very beginning, yes. hero cop drug bust, you yeah, know, this right, and that, right. and then just like you know, now they're going to jail. cash at the prison for disgrace cops, you know, all this stuff. Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, I I think you're spot on in terms of the chemistry. I I wonder if because Stallone was wearing all those different hats, if that kind of comes through in his performance where it's a little stilted maybe um, just kind of getting through the scene because he knows that he's got to do all this work on the next one. Whereas Russell seems way more relaxed um, in his delivery of everything. And I'm just wondering if it's because obviously all the responsibility that Stallone was um, kind of carrying at that time period. Yeah. To be fair, I think, I think that probably did affect him. Uh, Why is he rich or how is he rich? Is he a corrupt cop? (laughs) No, he's playing the stock market, man. Remember (laughs) got a margin call. They're like, yeah, Ray, <laughs> what's, what's a margin, margin call? call? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but hey, if, if if I don't know, I think the movie did a good job of putting Stallone in that role because I can't see Stallone in the other role. I can't see Stallone as cash and having sort of the uptight banker who's also a cop that kind of fits Stallone a little bit, sort of fish out of water. But um, I don't know. I what's crazy is he doesn't give this air of being better than everybody, but he carries himself better than everybody in that police department. Right? Yes. Yeah. But they all love him because he's the hero cop. Cause when he walks in the office that day, everyone is just ready to absolutely jerk him off. Uh, yeah, that's true. And I, I find it interesting that when you see the two different police stations and then he's all well-dressed, but the other cops within Ray's precinct are also wearing suits, et cetera. You get over to to Kurt Russell's precinct, and I mean, it looks like an uh, just an inner city war zone, right? Um, everything looks deteriorated. It looks like your traditional, I don't know. Um, I, I, I look at it this way. If you think about Beverly Hills Cop and going from like Detroit to Beverly Hills, you kind of get that dynamic within these two precincts and also within these two characters, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's partly why this works is it's, it is borrowing from Beverly Hills Cop and that sort of take these 
two cops from two different backgrounds and maybe two different areas and put them together. And um, they're not supposed to get along, but the fact that they're not getting along ends up being funny, right? I mean, it's this is this is borrowing from every uh, buddy cop film in the eighties, and yeah, this is this is like take all your buddy cop films, all your action films from the eighty, put them in a blender, you know, and spit it out, and this is what you get. But it's honestly, Troy, like it's the less of like it's not better than Lethal Weapon as a film, like. But I think like you add in all these other pieces to it, and I think I like this movie more than those. I it, it, it might be crazy really? for me to say. So you're saying that you've got all these 80s action films, Beverly Hills Cop, Lethal Weapon, just name a few, right? And in, in that buddy action genre, you would pick Tango and Cash over those from a viewing experience or yeah, I, I know you're not saying exper- you're not saying quality though, right? No, I, but like it's it, it's taking from this film and from that film and from this film, and it's just bringing it all together and putting it in one location. And then on top of that, you have Sly and Kurt Russell together, and at the end of it, they're driving a really cool truck around like a dirt track, and stuff is blowing up. And I'm like, I think this is the best movie I've ever seen. To be <laughs> okay. honest with you, like it's it's stupid and not as good as all those films. I'm not saying that, but it's borrowing from everything and spitting out this product that I'm like, I think I would rather watch this film than a lot of those other ones. Um, even though I think lethal weapon two is better than this. And obviously like Beverly Hills cop is better than this, but I don't know. I've seen this way more than those films. I promise you. So is it, is it, does it come from like uh it feels like a greatest hits compilation yes, of those films? It is, it is 100% a greatest hits. Okay. Well, let me ask you this question then. What this is an action film. It's a buddy cop action film. What do you think about the action? The prison break in this movie is amazing. Like that sequence is one of my favorite sequences in a film. When he electrocutes Robert Zadar and then they both jump off the line and they're going like 40 miles an hour and they chop 75 feet and literally just get up and like, Oh my back. And like, uh, I think you would be broken in half, but Hey, the ground was a little wet. Maybe it gave way. I don't know, but it it's just, I love that sequence. I love the prison break sequence. I love the opening sequence with the shootout. Um, with him kind of shooting at the truck. I think I've seen that from a Hong Kong film. I, I don't remember. Oh yeah, I, I think you have too. Is, so is it Jackie? Ch- is it a Jackie Chan one? It's Police Story, man. It's Police Story. Okay, on, yes, man. yes, you're yeah. right. Okay, yeah. And um, and then the last sequence. I mean, it's got the action is 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 pretty great. And um, yeah, man, that prison break the in the prison stuff where they're getting electrocuted in prison. It it looks like it hurts. Um, it's it's just great. It's great. Now I wouldn't say like the choreography and all that stuff is like top. Again, it's there's better choreographed fight scenes in a lot of '80s films, but I get Kurt Russell and Sly Stallone in this one. You do, I, and that carries a lot of weight for whatever reason. And I, I can't remember if there was a stint of X amount of years because this was one of those I would watch on regular rotation, and I had always thought that it had tons and tons of action. But when you watch it, there's action in it but it is spaced out at a reasonable amount to allow Kurt Russell and Sylvester Stallone to have the interaction. So 
they can't forget about the courtroom drama as well. Yes. <laughs> I wish we had Jose here to tell us how um, realistic all of those proceedings are. Probably I, the worst lawyer of all time representing be. Tango and Cash. With all that money that Tango has, you would think he could get a better lawyer, but no. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't think the action knocks your side. So-, so watching it this time, this is kind of what I felt. I think the two opening sequences at the beginning of the film might be the best and most memorable. So Stallone is 100% ripping off the police story sequence of the uh, double decker bus and Jackie Chan, like firing the gun up in the air. It hits, they come out. Mm-hmm. So, and, and him and Jackie are friends. So I'm, I'm sure when Jackie saw this, he saw it as a compliment. It wasn't like, Oh dude, I'm suing you. But you know, case in point, police story has been ripped off by, you know, bad boys and everything. I mean, or bad boys too, I think is the one that ripped off the, uh, the cars going through the shanty town sort of thing. Yes. Yes, it did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it's not as good. (laughs) It's not as good, but, um, Russell's car chase in that parking garage is fantastic. That, that might be one of my favorite sequences because of the way it's shot and it looks with them going through like the hanging neon and Uh the amount of damage they do. Uh, in that parking garage is, is a lot of fun. I think, I think the rest of the action in the film, like the prison break and the big trucks with the guns, it's, it's interesting mayhem. However, the bad guys, especially in that last sequence end up destroying their own stuff more than tango and cash do anything because they're launching rockets and they're not hitting tango and cash as much as they're hitting everybody else. Right. Yeah. Well, but it's it's interesting. If your boss is like, "Hey Troy, uh, we want you to go out here and shoot these rockets," you're just like, "Cool, I'm just going to shoot some rockets." I know, but I, that whole sequence feels like if you and I got together on the playground and we brought our Tonka trucks, our GI Joes, and we're like, you know what, we're just going to um, have like a play date and film our own action films with that stuff. I mean, that that's what that that third uh, or that climax sequence is. Their third act is absolutely. Uh, I I do enjoy. I don't know that little showdown um, between Brian James and Kurt Russell and then, uh, you know, Sylvester Stallone and, and the karate guy. It's fun. Yeah. I think that, that like seeing their, their fights at the same time is, is pretty cool. Um, yeah. You don't get to see that much. So I, I feel especially like it, for like an American action film. Right? Yeah. It, it just, it feels like it's missing one more action set piece, but that could be me just being greedy because I think what's there is shot really well. This this is where I want to kind of talk about for a second. Um, I think the film looks amazing because of Donald Thorne. I think he makes some of these sequences look amazing. And you, you talk about the prison break sequence. I love that sequence, not because of the action, but how it looks like the shots that they get with the rain mm-hmm. and they're zip lining off of the roof over the electric fence. And you've got some, you know, electricity going off. It just looks amazing. It looks gorgeous. Well, the introduction to the prison scene where they're walking towards the camera down the hallway and the paper is on fire and it's like raining down. Yeah. And it's like, ah, God damn it. I forgot the marshmallows and <laughs> all this stuff. That it's shot gorgeously because it's like raining down these fire and all this stuff. And you're like, God damn, this shot should not be in this movie, but it is. Yeah. Even the explosions at the end. I mean, as much as I want to sit here and go, Kurt Russell is the MVP, in my opinion. I'd almost give it to Donald Thorin in terms of how good he makes this movie look. Every kind of sequence, even the 
the blacks and the blues and everything at night, they, they just look great with the rain coming down. Mm-hmm. Um, even the opening sequence with the semi truck and, uh, the convertible in I mean, the it, desert, in the desert, the long looks, highway, you know, yeah, it looks fantastic. I mean, he, he really shot the hell out of this thing. And I, I totally understand why Stallone would have wanted him over Barry uh, in terms of cinematography, because after you work with this guy on lockup, which I, th- I think is another sort of underrated gem, Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he sort of brings that same look over to this one and, and it works everything about this film. And, and what I love about it too, is it's a great case of there's action going on. The camera doesn't split away at the wrong time. Now it's filmed so good. You see the stunt doubles very easily. Yes. There are a lot of stunt doubles. Yes. <laughs> you, like that one sequence where the FBI agent gets in his car and it blows up and Stallone gets thrown out. You clearly see uh, Stallone's body double hit the ground and then it cuts and you see Stallone shaking his head and you're like, well, you, you guys don't even have the same hair. <laughs> <laughs> that was for the VHS days. They were never like, Oh, this is going to be on Blu-ray one day. Yeah. I don't know. I just, uh, I, I think the action is good. It doesn't knock your socks off. I think it, it's serviceable. It is. And, and for whatever reason, I like the sequences in the beginning, probably. Well, I really, I really like the Tonka truck GI Joe action at the back. I don't know. I, I, I like it both, but there's something about that garage sequence and, and maybe it's the way that Donald Thorne shot it where you, you just get these cars going through the neon and just all the, the chaos and mayhem. It looks really good. Yeah. I, it, I, I definitely agree with like the, it should not look this good for like a dumb buddy cop film. Um, but it does. And I think the action takes a backseat to, sly and kurt russell to build their relationship and have them together on screen and i think that's where the film really shines is is them not really bickering but you know like that shower scene should be really awkward but it's kind of not it kind of really works like there's character building it's like watching an old yeah it's like watching an old married couple um argue And, and i love stallone's impersonation I still like, you don't know shit. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, no, it's it. This movie is like watching a charismatic old couple bicker and fight and shoot bad guys. Yeah. But you could tell that they love each other. Yes. It, it, the bromance is all over this thing. And, no. and now that it comes to mind, I, I'm thinking, what was the last kind of buddy action cop movie? I saw bad boys three right around COVID, right? That was the highest grossing movie that year. Oh, bad boys for life or bad boys for life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think this one just runs circles around any of the bad boy films, in my opinion. Yeah. I think bad boys two is pretty solid. Um, it's got, no, a, I don't- it's got amazing action sequences, but there. It does. It uh, like I agree with you. Bad Boys well, Two has and, some. And Will Smith kind of does really well at the Kurt Russell like charismatic. I mean, say what you will about Will Smith now, but when he was in his prime, he was probably the most charismatic um, actor we had. Like he, he was he had that charm. It there um, is, but do you do you think the like Martin Lawrence Will Smith banter versus no. That that stuff wears on me so much because it just goes on and on and yeah, on. Yeah, th- that might on. be it. It it it's almost like these two, and and by these two, I mean Russell and Stallone. They get in there, they make their jokes. The jokes are dumb. I get it, but they don't <laughs> overstay their welcome the way that I think some of the bad boy sequences do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a question for you. Is this the first time you saw or heard a film 
reference a film that the actor was in. Oh, because yeah. nine year old Brad, who's watching this on HBO, hears Sylvester Stallone say Rambo is a pussy, and I'm like, what? What is going on? He is Rambo. What? What is going? Like, it was like Dorothy exiting the cabin into Oz for me. Like, it, it blew my mind. I'm like, can you even do that? Can we do that in film? Can we talk about a film that the guy was in in another film? It was mind blowing to me. Uh, that's a good point. I, I got to say, now that I think about it, it was probably one of the earlier films I started to recognize that whole meta yeah. aspect of movies where, you know, one film is recognizing another fictional character within their universe, right? Yeah. Which kind of goes back to that last action hero discussion we had where, you know, they... they yeah, that one kind of jumps to shark on that. Uh, but here it, it, it works because it's, it's just one joke. Yeah, it's uh, not hitting you. Over God, I, I love that cop in the first one. He's like, you're out of your territory, asshole. <laughs> like, God damn. That'll see. It's so. OK, so my thought on this thing overall, the film is an equivalent of a really good traditional grilled cheese sandwich. And, you know, me and, and my my fascination with grilled cheese sandwiches, uh-huh. it's it's a very specific recipe and you don't fuck with it. It's two slices of Texas toast, lightly buttered, two slices of American cheese. Okay. No bacon, no oregano, no tomato, none of that crap. Right. It's it's, and it's no 16 different cheeses either. I've seen people try to mess with that too. It's not a bunch of crazy ingredients. It's a really good old fashioned grilled cheese sandwich. Like that's my review of tango and cash. Do you like really good, grilled cheese sandwiches made with Texas toast and two slices of American cheese. If the answer is yes, you're going to love Tango and cash. Like that should be on the box cover art of the next special edition DVD, Blu-ray 4k of this thing. Do you like grilled cheese sandwiches without all the other junk? You're going to love Tango and cash. Cause that's all this film is. And you may go, well, that's kind of bland, but to me it's like, yeah, but if you've had a really good grilled cheese sandwich just with the basic ingredients, yeah, I mean, Tango and Cash is just a really good action film. It's, no, it doesn't I, set I, the world on fire. That that's yeah. just what it is. Yeah, I would I would call it like a good club sandwich. But yeah, same same thing. Okay, so I have a question for you, Kurt Russell in drag. Was I aroused? Yes, I was. Okay, just <laughs> making sure. Uh, yeah, I think that was the first time I also like was exposed to men dressing up as a woman, and it's like, wait a minute, I'm oddly sort of though. To be fair. Uh, what's her name coming out in the biker gear? I was, I was, Oh, Holy shit. Okay. Here we go. Uh, I think, I think it's another case of how good Kurt Russell is in this film Mm -hmm. because there's that sequence where he comes out of it and then, um, they're at the house and he and Ray are arguing, et cetera. And he's still in that dress. There's this level of confidence that Kurt Russell has and you go, okay, this is a really cheap joke. Kurt Russell in drag. It's it's the equivalent of a fart joke, right? But yeah, the way yeah. he does it and pulls it off and you know he's having fun with it, it's he just sells it and it's a, and it's a great sequence. I mean, yeah, as, I mean as lowbrow as it is, I I remember that sequence. It's I mean, a lot of fun. Even in drag, he's got big dick energy. Like he it just it is <laughs> and he even makes the joke about the pantyhose and yeah. like he has like 
there's no shame in it either. Like this is a 1989 film and he's in drag and it's nothing. They play it pretty like, yeah, I had to do it and it's fine. And Hey, I, I kind of like it and it's totally cool. And yeah, I, yeah, when I saw him in drag, I was like, this is, uh, this is going places, which I, <sighs> can we talk about the strip club? Cause um, it's odd. Was it a strip club? Well, there was, <sighs> it felt like one of those, uh, performance art. Yeah. I don't know what I, I've never been to anything like that before. That but when I look just, at this thing, it's like, it's not a strip club, but this feels like one of the, no, no, no. It, it feels like one of those places that would be in some financial district and it's supposed to be really saucy, but it's not a strip club. Like, yeah. You're supposed to like, you know, take your business like uh, really kitschy. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay, this is yeah. where you go to close deals. That's right. And watch uh, Terry Gar play drums. Terry Hatcher. Terry Hatcher. Sorry. Not yeah. Terry Gar. <laughs> but yeah, boy. Is she a good drummer either? Because it didn't look like she was on the beat very well. Um, no, I mean she's a good dancer, but I yeah yeah I wouldn't it is, I wouldn't necessarily uh, I mean, hire her for my cover eighties cover band. No, no. Can we talk about? So, what do you think of the the Sith music in this? The soundtrack. Yeah. So the score is okay. The, oh, I love the score. Well, I love the score. I have one problem with no, the score. No, it's like a budget. It's like the Dollar General version of Fletch. Top Gun and uh, that stuff I'm fine with. I, I I love that aspect of it. Yeah, there's a theme song that plays for cash with a funky harmonica sound <laughs> that just doesn't work for me. I, the, uh-huh. the music when you hear it, it makes me feel like we're going into Sesame Street. Like I'm expecting Big Bird and Grover and everybody to show up when Cash's theme comes on. That that har- you know what I'm talking about that harmonica yeah. little sequence. Yeah. I I hate that sequence. It's supposed it's, to be goofy and fun, but it just reminds me of Sesame Street. And also, can we talk about what goddamn movie is Jack Balance in? Because it's not in this movie. I don't know. You don't think what so? He is oh, it's he is just turned up. It, it is the best. It is so good. You, when he uh, in his layer that he has, like, and what like did he buy the the mice? just for props to talk about Tango and Cash, or did he already have those? I don't know. So I, I was thinking about that sequence. So you're you're trying to give your big speech on how you're going to, like, nail the good guys, right? Yep. And, and why don't he just, why does he just get them killed? Like, this he overcomplicated. Explained he explained that. You don't want to turn them into martyrs, right? Yeah, I know. So. But you're going to hire someone to shoot Cash, yeah. hopefully that he's wearing a vest, to give him bad information mm-hmm. to set them up. It seems overly complicated, but at the same time, it seems very simple. Yeah. I'm I'm 100% into it. Look, I, I will buy it. I don't care. But it's just, it is a long walk to get to well, you're, that. You're uh, talking about Jack Palance. Like, how good is he? If if you're if you're showing up on the movie set and you go, okay, Jack, here's your script. And you're going you're gonna to go through this complicated, how, here's how we're going to frame him, right? And over here in a bar, we have a maze. And you're going to take these two mice and one's tango, one's cash. You're going to you're going to give your your villain speech and instead of like pat, petting a cat, right? You you got these two mice and and you're going to put them in the maze. He pulls it off, he sells it. Like I believe Jack has that whole setup in his home. And when he's doing business deals, he's like come over to the bar and you see a bunch of like mazes and mice and whatnot. That's how good he is. That's how yeah. that's how good he is at that role. Because I 100% believe they just went to like Jack Palance's house and filmed that. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy to see like 89. He does 
Batman 89 in this. And then like, I think two years later he wins for the Academy award for city slickers. You uh, could have given me a million dollars and been like, Hey, do you think Jack Palance is ever going to win an Academy award after seeing these performances? <laughs> yeah. And I'd be like, hell no. <laughs> now should he have won for city slickers? I don't know, but he did. But anyway, it is, it is an amazing performance. Um, well, what do you think about Brian James performance? I mean, he, Again, he's supposed to just have a couple of scenes, but he invents this Cockney accent, and uh, which is terrible. But it is it's, really bad. But it's really good, terrible. Like it's fun, especially when he's being hung upside down on the roof, and they're trying yeah. to torture him. It's it's. I mean, for not. He's like, I kind of like this. Yeah, crikey! Not for one second do I believe he is from over the pond, but I think it adds to the charm of this film. Yeah, and so does that ponytail of his. And uh, electrocuting Robert Zadar to death also adds to this film as well. Like, as soon as they're walking through that little, like, hey, don't touch it. And you know, at some point someone's in time, gonna touch it. someone's going to touch it. Yeah. And it's such a cool death scene. And though I think there's standing water on the top of that roof, I think if he is electrocuted, the current goes through well, the water. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, <laughs> I too, know. Too I much, know. Too much science. We, okay. we have rules. Okay. Um, um, this is going to turn into moonfall. Yeah. I, it's just, there is, if you ask me what my favorite part of this movie is, I don't know what I would say. Cause it's got a, I think with, I would say all of it, all of it's my favorite, Troy. All uh, of it. I'd say anytime Kurt Russell opens his mouth, that's my favorite part. He's, He's so now, I, I wouldn't argue against that, but I mean, but he's in a lot of the scenes. So oh, I know, I know. To I, say, yeah, yeah. But uh, again, I, I will echo that Kurt Russell is the best part of this movie by far. Now give it up to Sylvester Stallone. We might not even have this movie. If it wasn't for him, it probably, I, I, I don't know what happens if he's not on set. Um, so good on him, but what we see on screen, it's it's Kurt Russell's film, and damn, he's so cool. <laughs> he's hey, I, I love the way he dresses. I mean, who who do you relate with more, Kurt Russell or Sylvester Stallone in this film? Like, if if you were if we had to be like Tango and Cash, who would you be? Like five years ago, I always had to dress like Tango. So you'd be Tango, but now I get to dress like Cash. <laughs> yeah, I I probably fall on the Tango side because I do have to dress like that a little bit more. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, but like they both are like, you know, nice and fit, but it looks like, like Tango's a guy that would wake you up at like four 30 to go to the gym. Like cash is like, we're going to like get this hangover over with. We're Let's gonna have a breakfast have a quick, burrito. We're going to drink a quick beer and then yeah. we'll go work out because yeah. I've got a, you know, hair of the dog sort of deal. Um, hey, I'm with you. I'd, I'd much rather hang out with cash. I'm with yeah, you hundred percent. Sure. Uh, what else? Anything else? Uh, no, I think that's, I think that's it. It's not, it's almost critic proof. I, I love at the end when you get the high five in the yes. bad English song. I mean, yeah. every <laughs> talk about just landing on every, I don't know, action film of the eighties, that trope of the high five. Here comes this like rock song. I love it. Freeze frame. You've got the newspaper up in the corner. That's like, don't listen to the critics. I kind of feel like this movie's a little bit critic proof. Like I always wonder about these films where from an audience perspective, everybody loved it. It's a box office hit, but the critics are like, man, this is junk. Like Ebert wouldn't even review it. 
But after all these years, I feel like the critics are still wrong. I'm still shocked, though, that of the audience score, like people who go into the internet and rate these things, it isn't sitting in like the 70s or 80s percent. Like you still have half of the people who come across this film and go, it's not for me. And yeah, I would have, I would have, if you would have told me to guess beforehand, I would say 75% with audience score. I, me too. I just, I wonder if it, I, I don't know, is it too much of a guy film? Is it too lowbrow in its humor? Is the script, I know the script's dumb. I, I think the <laughs> actors do a really good job of selling what's there and the charisma they, like, is on that's display. That's the thing, like, it is dumb, but they want you to take this film so seriously the whole time. Like, no, it is serious. No, we want you to be serious. This is serious. Do they? Are- Do they really? I mean, I, I when I read that stuff about, you know, the producers wanting to take it to more goofier side of things and Stallone's wanting to keep it serious and the director. You can see that. You can see that pull of this. Like, there are yeah. times when Sylvester's trying to be funny. Obviously, Kurt Russell's really funny. But then, you know, you, you see Jack Palance and he's like, basically just chewing the scenery up and playing this serious villain. And, you know, you have these torture scenes in prison and you have this uh, guys being electrocuted and all this stuff. I just think they want you to like, really, this is one of the films I think of, of they don't make anymore. Cause if this was made now, Ryan Reynolds would be Kurt Russell and you can go ahead and shit your pants now and, and vomit. <laughs> and then the rock, I don't know what the rock be. Oh, Sylvester red notice. Well. They made, they made that. It was yeah. called red notice. And so, yeah. 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 And, and, and you know, it, it would be so self-aware and like, a, there would be no sexuality in it at all, but like there, this is not like one of those self-aware films. Like they are, they are going for it. Remember when we were talking about, stone cold and i come in peace like this is a straight up like craig r baxley sort of deal where they're going for it um actually you know what i would have loved to see i was just thinking about that like if baxley directed this thing this may be like the greatest action film ever made if craig r baxley did it shit yeah yeah you bring up a good point like take ryan reynolds the rock Gal Gadot and the um, Red Notice. Oh, God. Red Notice is a bad version of Tango and Cash. It is, but there is zero chemistry. There's just zero. For me, there's zero fun in that film. Um, what's the other one that Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum did? Uh, the Romancing the Stone ripoff uh, that came out last year. But you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So you've got all these films where you have these big the movies I made about mm, 20 minutes into and said, you know what? No, thank you. Yeah. But it's, it's a, it's a great example. The Lost City. Lost, Lost City. City. That's right. So you got a great example of sort of these powerhouse movie stars coming together. They're supposed to have all this charisma and charm, give them the most pedestrian script and okay. It's average. I'm, I'm not going to be surprised. No twists are going to really make me fall out of my seat, but I'm supposed to be enjoying the ride, right? Because I'm going mm-hmm. with these people. Red Notice, I wanted to blow my brains out because it was just irritating. There was zero chemistry. There, there may be real chemistry behind the scenes, but they're trying so hard and it, and it comes through as just vanilla and um, boring. Just so boring is the only word I can think of. This film it, and I, again, I equate this to Kurt Russell because I think he's pulling a lot of, out of Stallone's performance, but those two are having fun. Those two have real chemistry. 
And you could probably think Andre and, and um, you know, Stallone and anybody else who probably directed this thing behind the scenes, but they managed to capture the good moments and get the best performances out of Kurt Russell and Sylvester Stallone. And I don't know what it is. It might be lightning a bottle, whatever, but that, that bromance that's on there, I, I, I'm sorry, like Ryan Reynolds and, and, uh, the rock zero bromance. Like I, I don't ever want to see that bromance. I would watch yeah. tango and cash two, three, four, five. I'd watch them in a retirement home. They're fun. Yeah. Agreed. A hundred percent agree. Yeah. All right. Well, it's time for the question then. <laughs> I, I think do we even, it's not, it's, it's not, not a bomb. bomb. Jesus. Not okay, a bomb. It's not a bomb. All right. Never mind. Uh, you want to talk some listener feedback? I would love to talk listener feedback. What you got for me? We got some good stuff. Uh, I want to start with Jacob. And listener, you don't get to see this, but Troy prints out the listener feedback, and I, I love it so I much. Do. I love it. Uh, so Jacob had sent us some listener feedback, was it a week, two ago? And um, he referenced some books that he had wrote. So he he responded back and said, and this is from Jacob, I forgot to include a link to the books I've written on the subject of So Bad They're Good Movies, just so you can see what I'm talking about. So Brad, you and I actually went out and bought volume one, and it's called Awful Awesome, A Journey Through the Wild World of So Bad They're Good Movies. It's written by Jacob Gustafson. I hope I got the last name right, Jacob. Sorry if I butchered that. Uh, I posted a picture of this on our socials too. Man, this book is awesome. Have you have you kind of looked at it? I just it a got bit? I got it uh, just a few days ago. I haven't started it, but I'm I'm going to um because I was flipping through it. Of course, Samurai Cops in there, Miami Connections in Lethal there. So I'm like, force. you know what? Yeah. Yeah. Like you did a good job. Um and so yeah, I I was pleased that he actually sent it and let us know. I will I will link to his book in our show notes if anyone is interested in buying it. It's fourteen ninety five, so you know, go support someone who went out and, and did something that I've always thought about doing was writing a book. Um, turns out I can't write, but um, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool to have someone create something that listens to our creation. And then therefore we could go and purchase his creation. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. There's a whole series. He does one, uh, a, a series on horror films, science fiction films. I'm going to, I'm going to plow through the action ones. I love the fact, I mean, he has, he has some Cynthia Rothrock in here. So yeah, I, don't, I, I noticed that. I don't think any of her films are bad. I mean, when you put martial law, martial law is amazing. So, um, I disagree. It's, it's not awful. Martial law with Chad McQueen's amazing, but I do love the fact I'm, I, I was going through this and I'm, I'm reading it and I'm like, oh my gosh, half of these movies I own probably another 25% I've seen, but there is a segment of films in here that I knew nothing about. And I'm always impressed when somebody can kind of come to the table and go, Oh, have you, have you seen this film? And you're like, no, didn't even, didn't even know about iron thunder from 1990. <laughs> yeah. Mean, okay. Um, maybe we will, uh, maybe we'll pick a film from there. I think so. What's, what's crazy is we've talked about, uh, some stuff actually what's even crazier. If you want to flip through this, Brad, this will be a, a little adventure for you. There are a couple of titles in this book that um, are on the Breaking Bad list. Ooh, there you go. Okay. Yeah, you can try and figure out which ones are on the list. But I want to finish his email. He says, somehow I have never taken the plunge into Battlefield Earth, but your coverage was a lot of fun to listen to. I remember when it came out, some friends saw it and hated it. 
Also, I forgot to mention that Not A Bomb was the podcast I listened to most last year, according to Spotify. I think I listened to over 6,000 minutes or something crazy like that. So keep up the good work and I'll keep listening. Uh, that might be the nicest thing that someone's ever said to us. 6,000 minutes of our voices in one year. Wow. God. Yeah. I hate, the, I hate the sound of my own voice to hear it for 6,000 minutes. I'm sorry, Jacob. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you, Jacob. And and please, um, I hope you're doing a couple of more volumes. There's there's a lot of films to cover out there. And uh, I, for one, am going to be going through and buying this. Actually, I've, I've got a bromance on the side, Brad, and I think I might be buying the first volume of this for their Valentine's present. So, Ooh. yeah, uh, we got some more feedback from cam. So I'm not going to read the entire email, but I just, I'm going to do a summary. Cam gave us a list of over 90 film recommendations for the show. So he went through and we're talking probably over the last 40 years. He's like, here are some bombs that you haven't talked about yet. And it's over, it's over 90 films. It was incredible. Yeah, some of them were on our list, but a lot of them were not. Like, like eighty-five of them were not on our list. Yeah, Jim Cotta was on our list, but man, there, there, a lot of them were some great recommendations. And I was thinking about this. Um, I think we got to go through that list. We might have to do a lightning round episode every once in a while, um, and just say, okay, let's take two or three, just watch them, and then we'll just spend fifteen minutes on each one and go. Here's some bombs, and and we'll say, hey look at this one, maybe skip this one, but, yeah. uh, thank you, Cam, so much. Like you, you filled up the next five, six years. Yeah. We can, be, we can keep doing this podcast for a long time. Uh, I got one more I was going to share from Chris. So, and it's the Chris Evans, by the way, mm-hmm. um, Chris here, yeah, Captain America. He listens. Yeah, we know he does. He does. Chris here just got done listening to the first episode of breaking Brad. And I have to say, I may, it may be my favorite podcast I've heard. The chemistry between you four guys is infectious. I can't wait for the rest of the Breaking Bad episodes to release. I just want to hear you guys talk and joke. Now for my submission for Breaking Bad, Brad, though I am sure this will break Troy, Sammy, and Jose as well. The film is called Lakeisha. It's a 2019 comedy where a bartender becomes a radio host by impersonating a black woman. If you think my boss's daughter is a hate crime, then this one will blow your mind. Love the podcast and obviously love the addition of Breaking Brad. Keep up the good work. Brad, I watched that news. trailer. Yeah, I, I think it's funny you watched that trailer. So Chris, you and I are sharing a brain. So I'm just going to tell you right now, last year, I don't know how or when, I came across the trailer for this film. And uh, I wrote it down. And when we started putting the list of potential candidates for the Breaking Brad series, Lakeisha is on there. But since you wrote um, and recommended it, it's definitely going to be one of the 12 films we talk about this year. Okay, don't tell me when. but I will not tell you when, Brad, but it's coming. I watched that trailer twice because I had to watch it a second time to to make sure it was real. Because the first time I watched it, I didn't know. So we, I thought someone was like going to Rick roll me at some point in time. I'm like, no, it, it, this, this is real. We, we get that. We get that email and I'm laughing about it. And, and Tabitha's like, what are you laughing at? I'm like, oh, I totally forgot about this trailer. It's a movie that we have on the list. And a, a, it, what's serendipitous is a, a listener recommended it. She's like, what's the movie? I'm like, well, let me show you the trailer. You're, you'll, 
I just want to get your reaction. So I show her the trailer and she's like, well, I'm kind of interested in seeing that. I'm, I'm in. I'm, I would like to watch that. <laughs> I'm like, of course, because uh, you picked the pest in Greece 2 last year when we let you program. So, of course, you would you would like to watch that one. Is, is LaQuisha on? It's Amazon Prime. You can rent or buy it. I think to buy is $9.99. To rent is $2.99. There is no physical copy. Trust me. I've been looking for a oh, while. Okay. I was going to look. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would love for there to be a physical copy, but uh, unfortunately, that could be. Oh, oh shit! We have to talk about the suggestion for the the shitty Criterion. Oh yeah, you want to you want to share that one? Is it Shiterian? Well, yeah. Is it shite? Is that the uh, yeah shite? Yeah, yeah. So Shiterian. Yeah, that was yeah Linus Linus uh, who does Death by DVD and is on Watch Get Plus a few times. Uh, sent us and said, "Hey, it's got to be shite." Shiterian. Shiterian. Like, yeah yeah hey that's great that's perfect I, I agree we should probably like do some kind of kickstarter launch and see if we can get enough money and then start producing uh i don't know would battlefield earth be our first one it feels fitting because that's when we brought it up yeah maybe laquisha is our first one <laughs> i don't know if i want to be associated with that one holy shit uh well there's no physical copy of laquisha maybe, i know maybe that, that would... is the one we do i agree yeah oh man how awesome would it be if i could get the director you know what, Brad? Could be a very special episode. Oh, I'm sure you can. I mean, what else is he? He'll have to ask off from McDonald's <laughs> that day, but sure. Uh, Brad, how does everybody reach us if they want to send us in some amazing recommendations? Um, and, and again, guys, thank you. Thank you so much for the feedback. Thank you for the emails. Uh, Brad and I ran across a review that I didn't even know was out there from 2021 on <laughs> on our cowboy bebop episode i I gotta say this it was it was a three star review out of five and it was a five it was a five (laughs) but he didn't like the take from the texan sounding guy and the person who sounded the best uh got very irritating so i don't know if that was you or me i'm gonna assume it's me because it's cowboy bebop you're the expert on that so whatever my thoughts were on that series was was probably dumb but um you love the series. I, I love the series. I, I know. I, I I wasn't a huge fan of one character until the end, and then I fell in love with them. Yeah, which everyone didn't like that character at the very beginning. It's That's what everyone did. But anyway, yeah, yeah it was I, funny. I, just, I love the interaction. But I love those kind of reviews. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, we're just sharing opinions. We're, yeah. we're not right or wrong. It's like, here's how we react to something. But I, I love it when people will leave little comments on our posts, will send us in emails, recommendations. Um, it, it's all about the community and, and you can disagree with us. You could say you guys are total idiots on your opinion. Hey, we love it. I mean, it's someone it's could come sharing. up to me and say, they think Tango and cash is the dumbest movie they've ever seen. And I'll say, yes, it is, but I love it. Yeah. But that, that's what it's about, right? Yeah. yeah okay. Of course. So how do people get hold of us? Yeah. That's not about pod at gmail.com. You can also head over to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and messages there. Or you can go to notabombpodcast.com, hit the contact us button up at the top, leave us a suggestion, a comment, a request, and uh, yeah, we will we will get around to it. We have quite the list going, and Breaking Brad can only be 12 episodes for this year, um, unless we do it again next year, which by the... Uh, by the feedback, it sounds like it might be an ongoing thing, but um, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm my bet is still this summer. You're just going to quit and you, you're going to go. I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. 
I'm going to become like a monk or something like that. I don't know. You'll be like, look, I'll do the regular show, but you are not picking shitty ass movies for me to watch. So I have the, I have the apples circled for this weekend. So, oh boy. Now you remember we're, we're supposed to not be under the influence of anything when we watch. That. No, I know. Okay. I know. Right. Okay. I know. Got it. Promise. Um, um, yeah. So, so, oh yeah. Go. Next week. Yeah. Next. Oh, my pick. Yes. We're continuing the bromance. So, Hey, we've got to probably talk about one of the biggest bromances in television history that ended up jumping to the big screen. Brad, what are we talking about next week? Yeah, we were talking about 2006's um, film that is written, directed, and produced by one of my favorite directors, Michael Mann. It is Miami Vice, starring one Colin Farrell and one Jamie Foxx. I am super excited to revisit this thing. I am too. I am too. Um, has it been a while Michael since Man- you watched it? Um, yes, it has been. I saw it in the theater and then um, I think I own it. I know I own it and I've seen it maybe once or twice after that, but it's been a while. Yeah, I think I, think I, I remember, remember seeing it in the theater. I own the two-disc DVD. I never upgraded from that, so I've only seen it twice. So I'm really curious to... Uh, to watch it again now most of the home media versions if you're looking for it just fyi most of the versions out there are the unrated director's cut yeah Mil- that's the blu-ray from 2008 i believe yes there is a mill creek edition with this film and the kingdom another jamie fox film so it's a single disc though so you got two movies on one blu-ray but that has the theatrical cut so if you want to see the theatrical cut Really, the only way to do it is this new two-disc edition by Mill Creek. If you just end up buying the Blu-ray or the DVD of the standalone, the only way you can get it is the unrated director's cut here in the U.S. I think overseas there are Blu-ray editions standalone with the theatrical cut. But in the U.S., if, if you don't have an all-region player, et cetera, that's, that's the difference if you're, yep. if you're looking at the versions. Yeah, so I, I'm really excited to to go back and, and watch that reevaluate it. It's probably the Michael Mann film I've seen the least. Me too. Yeah. I'm, I'm super curious to come at it with a, um, I, I not a technical eye, but I, I, full disclosure. I just remember that movie looking terrible in comparison to the TV show. Cause you remember how bright and neonish the eighties version was. And I don't know about you. I, I am going to go back and revisit some of the television show episodes. I don't know how many I'll get through, but um, I, I just remember that film not having the greatest look to it. And I'm sure we'll get into it when we talk about it. Um, but I remember. I think enjoying, it's got a weird filter on, like a blue filter. Or yeah, something like but that. I remember liking it quite a bit. So I'm I'm really really fascinated to go back. So and then what are the other two films? Just so people can can prepare. Uh, yeah, I think the one after that, you would ask me, of course. Oh, the one after that would be Fight Club. Yep. And then, which was a bomb. The studio has come out and said it was a disaster film. Uh, not a disaster, but it didn't make the, the, the money back that it wanted. And then we're going to go to with a little showdown in little Tokyo, which, God, I can't wait to, to sit, that, sit down and watch that again, Troy. It's been a long time, and it's been... It's been calling my name for such a long time. We had it on the list and I've just been waiting and waiting and waiting. 
I think it's kind of funny. We're we're kicking bromance month with Tango and Cash. We're ending it on Showdown in Little Tokyo. And in between, we have two very serious films. <laughs> yes, two big studio films. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's crazy. <clears throat> By but, like directors who are some of the best of all time. Yeah. No, it's I, I'm I'm excited about this month. Uh and hey, look, Valentine's Day is just right around the corner. I promise I'm gonna get you something special for our special relationship. And, and I love you, man. I love doing this podcast with you. This is, uh, and we've said this time and time again, it's, it's nothing more than just a chance for us to get together, hang out formally. Um, and it's, it's one of the best parts of my week. So thank you so much for doing this. No, I second that. Uh, yeah, I look forward to this every week. We had to delay this a little bit, um, this week for some reasons and put a lot of things in perspective for us. And yeah, man, I, I love our relationship. I love you. Uh, this is, you know, kind of the highlight of my week outside of seeing my family and my kids and stuff. So, yeah, man, I wouldn't want to do it with anybody else. And I'm kind of glad that you and I decided to do this like two and a half years ago. So here we are. Yeah. And and for all you bros and gals out there, would it be a galmance if it's a bromance? What's the female version of it? I don't know. Uh, I mean, I think they're just friends. I, don't, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Galmance. Yeah. Galmance? All right. Well, find that special somebody that you got a bromance or galmance with and uh, tell them you love them. Give them, give them a nice big hug. Treat them special, especially around Valentine's Day. That's what this whole month is about. It's about appreciating people. Yeah. Tell people thank you. Yeah. A thank you goes a long way. Well, and, and just start acknowledging people. I mean, <laughs> nothing will brighten a person's day than just out of nowhere if you compliment them and can just kind of tell them, Hey, this is what I really appreciate what you bring to the table. Right. Especially yes. from the friendship perspective. So, uh, I know I don't do that enough, but I'm, I'm excited to talk about movies where at center of all the stories and everything else are two guys who just really care for each other and, um, are going through a lot of adversity and, uh, you know, that, Makes that bromance that much better, right? <laughs> yes, it does. It does. <laughs> this is turning into a Dr. Phil episode. <clears throat> All right. Let's get out of here. You got to do your thing, man. Okay, you got to do listen. Oh, yeah. So listen. I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thanks for downloading the show. Go and watch Tango and Cash. It's a blast. It is the perfect bromance film. And then come back and listen to our thoughts on Miami Vice. We're going to talk about one of the iconic romances that ever hit the 80s. And uh, it's going to be a fun time. So we'll see you next week. Don't lose your head. <laughs>